Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Sarah. We're back. For episode three. It's my lucky number. And self-serving, we, we build these episodes around our favorite things. And this one is our favorite thing in different ways. For me, it's my go-to research resource. I love, love, love the newspapers on microfilm. The ones from the early 1900s or even the 1870s. I love looking through them on our digital microfilm reader. You have a different connection and I love to the newspapering, don't you? I do. I'm nosy by nature. And so... <laughs> Journalism seemed like the great way to get paid for being nosy and telling everybody about the interesting things that I discovered in the storytelling. So that was one way that I made some money back in my prehistory world was in the journalism and the newspapering world, following around the accidents, which got really old. And that, that was a sad story to write. So I switched over to features and the human interest articles. They were far more interesting. That's what we do here at the Historical Society. Just it is a quirk. That, that they do kind of meet up like that. Oral histories are very close to journalism. Our episode today, who we'll be hearing from, he would definitely appreciate this. He was the editor and owner of the Anoka Union for many, 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 many years. This oral history that he gave in 1989 was done at the Minnesota Historical Society, and then they gave us a copy of it afterwards. That's what partnerships are about, the history organizations working together. Do you know anything about Arch, Rebecca? I know that he has a great voice and he's got some great stories to tell. I like the cushion one myself. Don't spoil anything. He was born in 1908 and ends up taking over the business from his father. And he ran it until his retirement in 1989. That's like 31 years ago. I masked it. <laughs> Are you ready to hear? I am. Let's meet Arch Pease and his interviewer, Margaret Robertson from the Minnesota Historical Society. I understand your grandfather started the paper. Is that right? No, that is not quite correct. The paper was started by a fellow by the name of George Grave, who was an itinerant newspaper starter. <laughs> and he came up here and started the uh, Anoka Union in 1865. And he hired my grandfather, Granville S. Pease, who bought the paper. He came as a, as a typesetter from the Atlas Map Company in Minneapolis, and Gray hired him up here. In August of 1866, he bought the paper from George Gray. And so your, your grandfather, he had no previous newspaper experience besides being a typesetter. No, he was a typesetter. My grandfather was quite a quite a cat. He took me down to the state fair one time, and uh, before we went to the state fair, I was probably six, seven, maybe eight years old, about 1916. Uh, he always wore a vest with a gold watch and had to push the button and the cover came off. This guy came up the aisle selling cushions. My grandfather was a very uh, gray-haired old buzzard, and uh, he stopped and he says, old man, he says, uh, you need a cushion. My grandfather looked at him and he says, 
I got enough fat on my hind end to last through this performance. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Oh, God. He was something. So uh, being a bit of a character kind of runs in your family. Huh? Oh, yeah, I guess so. And then your father started. Well, then you say my father, pardon me, graduated from the Anoka High School and um, started work for him. And when, Gran when Granville Espies died in 1925, Dad became the publisher and editor of the Anoka Union. And I was, uh, at that time, I was going to the University of Illinois, and, and uh, I was going to be a teacher. I was teaching, and I only got one job offer. Out of 400 contacts I made. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was 1931. Sorry, tough times. Well, it was tough times, yeah. And I went down to this little town in southern Illinois called New Athens. <laughs> and I, I, lived, I lasted there six years. Came up here, and they offered me a job at Anoka High School, and I took it. And how long did you teach at Anoka High School? I taught from 1937 to 1940. Then I quit. Went to Washington, D.C. with Congressman Richard P. Gale, who then represented the 3rd District. I was down with him until Pearl Harbor was bombed, and then I was called into service from the Army Reserve and as a first lieutenant. And I came out of the Philippines as a lieutenant colonel. And when you came back from the Philippines, then you came back to work on the paper. When I saw what shaped the paper was in during those after the war. I don't know how Dad managed to keep the damn thing going, but he did. And was, it was always amazing to me that he w was able to do that. I know that one of the problems with the paper was that they didn't have a good bookkeeping. Or, or we had system. no bookkeeping. We had nothing at all. Dad wanted any money, he'd go to the cash register and take it out. <laughs> he'd just go and grab it. And, Mother wanted any money, she'd take it out of there. I put a stop to that. They didn't like that, but I couldn't help it. It was a tinker toy operation, really. Dad had two presses that were printing the paper on. The best he could do was eight pages a week on both presses. In 1948, I bought a press that would fold and deliver eight pages at a time. And uh, that was the start. That's the first of seven presses that we bought. <laughs> I know when I was teaching in Illinois, my father called me one day and he says, he says, well, is this the end of, end of the printing business? The people come in, have come in here and started a shopper. I said, you got the equipment, you got the, the know-how, why don't you start a shopper? Oh, no, no, he says, we couldn't do that. And I said, well, I think you should. August of 1934, he started a shopper. And six weeks later, he bought the other people out. Is that for three hundred dollars? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And uh, that shopper is still in existence. Well, last week's shopper ran seventy pages, eighty thousand copies wow. a week. It's, it's been a gold mine. And Elmer knew this, and I. Of course, I told him it was a gold mine. <laughs> you weren't shy about it. No, I wasn't no. shy. I mean, I, I, I'm very happy with the progress we've made. We have a beautiful, we had a beautiful plant over here. Elmer's there now, and uh, a lot of people say, "Well, gee whiz, Arch, don't you, don't you hate that?" And I said, "No, I don't hate it at all." I said, "Elmer, 
Anderson is a friend of mine. And I said, he, I picked him. He didn't pick me. <laughs> That's not quite true, but sounds good. <laughs> there was the union, right? And then there was the... Uh, the Inoka Herald was, on, was owned by Roe Chase. Well, Roe died, and Mrs. Chase took over the Herald. She would not sell to me under any circumstance. She never liked me, see. And I, I couldn't figure out why she never liked me. She was a cousin of mine, a, a shirt-tail cousin, yeah. Well, anyhow, she uh, sold the paper to Eddie Babcock, who was an attorney in an, in an okay, and to Dick Benzian, who ran a furniture store here. They tried to hire my managing editor right away. Well, he wouldn't leave me. He stayed with me. But uh, a year after that, they both, Eddie and, and Dick, had to kick in $10,000 apiece to keep the thing going. Well, meanwhile, Warren Feist came into the picture, and Warren is a friend of mine, and Warren said, I'll sell you the paper, but he says, i got to have $5,000 on the side. And I said, okay, fine. So I paid him $5,000, the next day he came out with a brand-new car, which is all right. It bothered me, and he was... It seems to me a, a community paper, there's a tension because, you know, you want to be a watchdog over what's happening. That's right. But you also, there's some, in some sense, you're a booster, too, of the community. You have to be. I can well remember when Mercy Hospital was a, a, merely a gleam in somebody's eye. So the hospital board in Anoka uh, decided to build a hospital over on Park Street where the uh, Sorensen Athletic Field is, a 40-bed hospital. So they came to me and they said, will you support it? And I said, no. And I wrote, her, I wrote a couple editorials about 40 beds are not enough. Well, as, as it worked out, they went from 40 to 60 to 85. That wasn't enough. And boy, was I maligned, I'll tell you. I was a dirty old man, but I, I stuck to my guns because I figured that we had to have at least 150 beds for a growing community. And as it worked, I was right. But these people on the hospital board just gave me a rough time. Then they wanted to put it on the tax roll. And they wanted to have the city commission of the city of Anoka operate it. And I said, absolutely not. The city council is, doesn't know anything about hospital operations. They never will. It's a policy-making group. And the minute that you start operating, forget it. I know that one event that you uh, remember quite a bit is the tornado of 1939, which yeah. hit Anoka. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, sure. We were living at 8th and Main in Anoka. Barbara was a baby in the crib, and Tom was on the way, and it was Sunday afternoon. The American Legion Post was meeting at the armory. When I, uh, I was out in the yard cutting the hedge, I saw this tornado coming scared the living hell out of me because it was really a, a slam-bang deal, and I saw it coming from Champlin. I dashed into the house, I got him, and I said, down in the basement, down in the basement. It didn't, it didn't quite hit our house. Uh, missed it by two blocks. Immediately after that, I went upstairs, and the only thing that happened in our house was the screen door was blown off. <laughs> I got in the car, and I drove down to the office to make sure that but the tornado had gone between the plant and our house. I got down there and found out everything was all right, and I went back again. There were wires all over the place. I don't know how the heck I ever made it. 
And I decided, well, uh, I better go down to WCCO. So I went down to WCCO and took the mic at the station down here and broadcast. And I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> and I got help for that, but that's all right. I, I asked for help, and we got it. But it was, it was a scary time. And, uh, boy, thank God it, we didn't get hit. It would have leveled our place. It hit really then. What, what part of town did it really hit? Well, it came, it came across the river. And then it hit the it hit the armory. It just cleaned that armory up real good. And then it headed uh, directly north, parallel to the Rum River, and became non-existent in Isandy County. We put out a paper. We put out an extra several times that week. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. My father and mother were on a, a, a steamship to Alaska, and I was here running the paper all alone, and I didn't know what to do. But it, we got the job done. Mm. I don't know how I ever did it. I often fought back. When I, <laughs> oh, no. Well, I guess in your emergency sometimes. So. Yeah. yeah. You rise to the occasion, I guess. Right. You've uh, met a lot of local politicians over the, over the years. Are there any that, that really stand out in your mind? Oh, yeah. Uh, Hubert Humphrey was probably the greatest one I ever met. He always referred to me as his favorite Republican. <laughs> I liked Hubert. I thought he was a great guy. I thought he should have been elected president. He wasn't. I didn't support him because I was a party man. I learned a long time ago you don't want to be a party man all your life. Uh, I met John Kennedy at a luncheon at the White House once. And I was impressed by him. And the reason I was impressed, I was president of the Minnesota Newspaper Association mm -hmm. that year. He came into the room and he said, uh, where's Arch Pease? Now, he didn't mean that. He meant, where's the president of the Minnesota Newspaper Association? But he came over and took me by the arm and took me into the dining room and seated me right beside him. And he knew more about the family than almost than I did. <laughs> He knew Tom's name. He knew Barb's name. He he knew Ames' name. He knew every everything. Is that right? Yeah, he had a tremendous memory. He was a smart cookie. After the lunch, he said, "All right, now who has any questions? Arch goes first. <laughs> well, you know, I you can't help but be impressed. It wasn't me. It was the position I held. I knew that." A guy at the Star Tribune had his own plane down there, and he offered me a ride back to Minneapolis, and I refused <laughs> because I didn't want to be part, body and soul, owned by anybody. I came back on the train. How did Pea's Porridge, how did that come about? Well, Pea's Porridge was a column that my brother, Tom Pease, Thomas Gleason Jones Pease II, he... Uh, started Pease Porridge. And I didn't dare use it until 1946 when I came back from the Philippines because he gave me permission to use it. Or Pease Porridge was the natural name for a column. I, I thought it was great. But he owned, he owned the thing and he let me use it. He and I got along pretty well. Pease Porridge was always sort of bits of odds and ends and yeah, I could I could write put in an obituary. I could write something that happened that was funny. I'd do anything that I wanted to in the column, and some people liked it and some people didn't. Now they all want it back, and 
I, I don't want to keep on writing anymore. I'm, I'm writ out. I remember one story I wrote about my neighbor got picked up by the state highway patrol because he didn't stop as he approached the highway out here. Of course, it was published in the report. Mother never spoke to me for three months. <laughs> you know, you know regardless of how you run a newspaper, you better stick to your rules. And I always said that if anybody in my employee gets picked up for drunken driving, his name will be on the front page. And I had one of them get picked up for drunken driving, and his name was on the front page. Well, down at Carl's Cafe in Main Street in Anoka, the corner, they were taking bets. And I know one guy that collected $300 because he bet that there would be on the front page, and it was. Bunch of buzzards. <laughs> Did you ever have people complain about having their names published in the paper? Yes. I had one guy published, a, a dentist, a Dr. Evans, he called me up and he says, you put my name in your paper and I'll sue you. I said, might as well start your suit today because your name's going in. If you backtrack once, you're dead. I've had people come in and offer me money, $500, keep the name out. I won't, I'm, I never took it, never took a cent. Well, thank you so much. I have the privilege of talking today with managing editor Jonathan Young of the local newspaper here in Anoka, which is part of the Sun Publications, correct, Jonathan? As part of Adams Publishing Group, uh, which is the owner of the Sun Publications and a number of other newspapers across the state. And uh, actually, they have holdings throughout the country now. The corporation of newspapering now in order to survive. All the small local newspapers have had to come together in a conglomerate. It's true. There has definitely been some consolidation. And like a lot of things, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. You know, certainly some resources that become available and efficiencies uh, that you can realize. You've got a fairly long career behind you already, yes? It'll be uh, 10 years uh, professional journalism at the end of January. You're too young to have actually experienced the web presses that Pease talks about, unlike myself, who remembers waxing the column pages and actually sticking <laughs> them down on the grid sheets. We won't go into that. You've seen a lot of changes in the newspaper industry. That is true. Um, and I do remember the stories about those uh, web presses. And, and I've worked with plenty of people who remember that and uh, experienced that. Even in the last 10 years, we have definitely seen some changes. Perhaps not as dramatic as going from the web presses, the, the, all of that old technology and switching to the, the new way of laying out and printing the paper, which is all by computers and, and electronic. But even 10 years ago, digital photography wasn't that old. And the advent of digital photography was a blessing and a curse. It makes taking pictures a lot easier. You aren't limited in the number that you can take really, or the, and the processing is a lot easier and faster. But Ultimately, it did result in the, the loss of a lot of professional photography positions. Uh, reporters now take at least 
at smaller papers, community papers, reporters often take their own photos. That's what we do. We were also talking about news being the, the anomaly of the community. Does that help normalize the abnormal? That's a good question. I think, I mean, to an extent, um, you're right that when you're reading the news, there is something typically that is different about the story or important because otherwise, why are you going to want to read it? Why are you telling this particular story? One of my favorite things to do back in the day of phone books was to flip through the phone book to a random page, call the random name and say, I'm going to write a feature article on you. And they said, but on what? And I said, I don't know. I need to come over and figure that out. It always turned into one of the most interesting stories because people don't think that they are special. How do you go about finding the, the quirky news in the community? Well, that's one of the things that I do like about community journalism is I get to be in the community, get to know some of the people and tell some of the stories that you aren't necessarily going to see in some other publication. We do rely a lot on just being out at community events, going to community meetings, talking to people. We like to get phone calls and emails from community members with story suggestions, story ideas. And it is funny that sometimes, uh, like you said, sometimes the people with the most interesting stories don't think they have a story to tell. I love that you talk about that niche market of community news and what's important to a few thousand people living together versus what's important to the nation are very different things. And to think about what would be lost if we didn't have those community newspapers. I agree. And that is one of the things that keeps me going in the community news business is uh, that I do enjoy telling those stories and getting to know that community and being here for the good and the bad. Well, you do a great job and I appreciate being partners with you and the column that you let us have in the newspaper every week. You're a great supporter for us. It's often said that newspapers are the first draft of history and uh, you help to curate and preserve the, the history of the community and, and uh, write something more complete than the first draft. I like that first draft of history. That works really well. I can't take credit for it. I didn't come up with it. That's okay. I, You've, you've got the podcast version. That's all that matters, right? <laughs> Thank you for your time. This was fabulous. Hope to keep working with you in the future. It was my pleasure. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hi, I'm Haley Coble. I'm an adult services librarian at the Northtown Library in Anoka County. First thing I have, it's called the Family Tree Historical Newspapers Guide, How to Find Your Ancestors in Archived Newspapers by James M. Beidler. The next book I have is Coffee Made Her Insane and Other Nuggets from Old Minnesota Newspapers by Peg Meyer. It covers humorous, interesting, and weird ads and stories from Minnesota newspapers from the 1840s to the 1940s. Um, one Goodreads reviewer calls it 100 years worth of wonderfulness. I wanted to mention also a couple of databases for people who are interested in viewing current issues or historical issues of Minnesota newspapers. We have the Minnesota Digital Newspaper Hub, 
which is provided by the Minnesota Historical Society and can covers historical Minnesota newspapers from 1856 to 1924. We also have a database called Minnesota Newspapers. And this is provided by NewsBank. It looks at editions of newspapers from the Duluth News Tribune, the Rochester Post Bulletin, the St. Paul Pioneer Press, and the Star Tribune. Some have issues back to the 80s, but all of them have current and recent issues posted here. Along with these databases on Minnesota newspapers, we also have newspaper databases for specialties like business um, databases on Latin American journals and online access to newspapers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. These are under the resources and databases tab under the books and more tab on our homepage. Thank you, Haley. Mm-hmm, no problem. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Oh, it's so fun to listen to people in our community talking about how much they enjoy their job with, you know, Jonathan and Archpiece both just really enjoyed being part of the newspaper world and, and Jonathan, telling these stories. Jonathan is like the grandson on the job for Archpiece. <laughs> the industry grandson. Yes, I love not, that. not blood related, but, you know, job related. There's a whole ancestry out there. It blows my mind that Arch died the year after that interview was done and just how close we were to losing that that story sitting right there. I had so much trouble trying to edit it down to 15 minutes from this hour and 23 minute oral history interview with gems and stories. We have the short version for the podcast, but if you're curious about that, that full episode, we have the full recording on our website in our vault for members. So if you haven't signed up for the vault, just buzz over to the website, click on History 21, and you will be prompted to create an account. This episode is going to be hard to top, but we have some plans in the works and you don't want to miss them. Episode four is going to be amazing. You're going to have to tune in to find out. Shall I see you next time? Well, absolutely. See you. Thanks, everyone. If you have a question or you would like to share your own story with us, you can find us at anokacountyhistory.org. We are all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all who scroll by. For our members and donors, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at our vault located on the website. History 21 is a production of the Anoka County Historical Society. Remember, the present is the past of the future.